Hello, Docolo. So good to see you. My name is Bob Sham, and I'm the host of this podcast called The Documenteers, and it's often about documentary films. Today, Akil joins me over video chat because we're in a global pandemic to discuss yet another documentary about a pro wrestler, but I swear I didn't intend this week to be about wrestling. Akil made a list, and he picked a doc from it, and what he picked was The Sheik by Egal Hecht. And it's about the infamous wrestling heel called the Iron Sheik, who went from WWF superstar to drug addict, which those things aren't mutually exclusive, to social media celebrity. One original song we hear in the episode is called Pile Driver, and it was sung by the wrestler Coco Beware on some single released by the WWF in the mid-80s, during a time where sports teams and athletes were putting out rap and rock videos uh, about the shit that they did. This intro I know is pretty short, but I want to say there are some big changes regarding the show that I will be announcing near the end of the month. In the meantime, there's a lot of content and 20 Quarantine Ears episodes in the feed that consist of casual conversations, and also eight of those episodes are Angela and I discussing the pandemic within a pandemic, known as the Tiger King docu-series. So check that out if you haven't already. In the meantime, watch this feed. Our final future Quarantine Year's Eps will be devoted to Drew and I discussing The Last Dance, the 30 for 30 series on MJ and the Bulls. And I'm I'm really excited to get to that. Uh, but until then, stay tuned and keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film, a thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. My name is Hossein Khosrow Vaziri. I born in 1942, but Iran was a peace. Everything was uh, very quiet. I was grew up to five years old, a small town of the Iran. Then my young day, uh, my business was in the Tehran, Iran, my father's business, and I was uh, 14 years old. My work was to go practice wrestling. week or two ago because Fantagraphics put out these old Carl Barks Ducks books but they're like storylines in like little small volumes and I'm sitting yeah. there reading like Donald Duck and Angela just was giggling she thought it was so <laughs> adorable that I'm laying in bed reading Donald Duck comic strips but I'm just a comic yeah writer. I was reading like I was reading like the Duck of Monte Cristo <laughs> yes like... I remember that one like, all those all those fun DuckTales stories most of them are fucking uh, Carl Barks and Don Rosa, Don Rosa stories yeah. and shit. Yeah. Have you it's, ever read The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck? Yeah, I have it. I plan on reading it soon, actually. You know what? Yeah. All billionaires are pedophiles except Scrooge McDuck. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's more of a, a, a 
an adventurer Indiana Jones type. If Indiana Jones knew how to keep money. I think he's fairly actual. I think his focus is solely on adventuring. It seems like Scrooge might have inherited his shit. Is he no. like a... No? If I remember... No. no in Life of Time. The Lucky Dime. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Well, like we said, older generations could acquire more capital a lot better than the modern generations. Uh, Uncle Scrooge and Donald, they did okay, but Huey, Dewey, and Louie are living paycheck to paycheck, and they're... <laughs> they can't make it to their, like, service gig now, and they don't know they're, what to do. They're with sharing a house. Yeah. Post-quarantine recordings of the documenteers, Akil, uh, I asked you to look up documentaries that weren't, like, depressing. That weren't going to be sad. And you gave me a nice abundant list. And I think I'll spread a lot. That list you gave me is probably going to get a lot of mileage of the next couple months. But. Nice. So for the first two weeks of April, we did wrestling documentaries. And when you gave me the list, I was like, okay, this one may not end up being a wrestling documentary. I'll just ask Akil to pick what he wants out of that long list that he gave. And Akil picked the wrestling documentary. The sheep. Yeah. We haven't done one. This is our first wrestling doc together. So, and it wasn't my intention for week three of April to be a wrestling doc, but hey, I like wrestling, so I don't mind, really, truly. And the Sheik by Egal Hecht. Now I got an issue with the title. He's not the Sheik. He's the Iron Sheik. There was another Sheik in uh, early wrestling in the seventies. He was a guy of Lebanese descent and he put on that headdress and he, and he called himself the Sheik. And obviously the Iron Sheik became more infamous in comparison in terms of pop culture, but technically he's not the Sheik. There already was a Sheik. He is Iron Sheik. So the movie title as a controversy, as a nerd, if you, if you, if you allowed me to be an, um, actually finger waving nerd about it. He should, the movie should be called The Iron Sheik by Egal Hecht. Before we started recording, I was just sitting here waiting for you to get ready. And I'm like, what the fuck is a sheik? Right? And a sheik <laughs> is apparently just an Arab leader. An Arab leader in a Muslim community or organization. Which is so bizarre. So, you know, this guy, Hossein Khosrow-Vaziri who we know as the Iron Sheik, he's from Iran. He gets out. Iran is in a... Iran used to be pretty swinging some years back, but they but they also had a dictatorship problem. And the thing that uh, this Iron Sheik ran away from there in Iran was stuff that would come to a head in later revolutions and replaced with ayatollahs and all that shit in the Iran we kind of know definitely today. definitely picked, picked a good time to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, the, but he was like a superstar, but this, uh, but this fucking, what was he like a king? Or did the guy consider himself a king? Like the shot. Yeah. This guy named Takti, who was one of the biggest wrestlers in Iran. Oh, you talked about, yeah, yeah. Like I he thought ends, you were talking about the shot. He allegedly commits suicide. Right. And, uh, Vaz yeah. And Vaziri is like right behind him in status. So he's set to, if Takti is like the biggest in Iranian history in wrestling and Vaziri is right behind him. So Vaziri sees that Takti killed himself. Vaziri's like, no, he didn't. 
I'm getting the fuck out of here. And he got out of Iran. <laughs> so I guess eventually he gets to America and everyone's like, oh, you're Iranian? Why don't you be a, like a sheik, like an iron sheik? Which, going up to like a Middle Eastern dune, it's, it's basically, and wrestling is of course notorious for this, and especially in old school wrestling. Where it's like, oh, uh, you're from China? Oh, go get one of those rice paddy hats and put it on this guy. He'll be the China man. Oh, racial right? stereotypes. That's that's the bread and butter of early days of wrestling. Like, yeah, was Chief yeah. Wahoo of any tribe? Truly, you know. I highly doubt it. <laughs> so anyway, but at least the sh- original Sheik was of Lebanese descent, I suppose. But going up to an Iranian guy, be like, "Oh, you're Iranian? Oh, like a Sheik with the head wrap thing? It'd be like equivalent of going up to like, oh, you're from America? You're probably like a mayor or something, right?" <laughs> are you like a mayor or a senator you're from america right <laughs> i mean you know a sheik sounds exotic to american it does. audiences because they don't know what the fuck a sheik actually well, hell we didn't know what a sheik was until you looked it up i feel like there's a yeah i mean we're victims of that we're Amer- we're unendingly american in that regard that we have to, but thank god for the internet for the education but, but yeah, it, it, what was fucked up was it was his wife that she's the one that suggested it. His wife was like, "You should, you should <laughs> go by the sheik. Like, you should, you should capitalize on your Iranian heritage." Which I, I mean was, I guess, was good advice considering the outcome. Yeah. Do you think like his wife probably thought like the sheik dudes were hot? You know, when the uh, what's that dude Yasser Arafat came along, she's like, "Damn, look at him in that." In that headdress there. Damn, boy. <laughs> the Ayatollah meetings. Like, oh, yeah. man. She's beard, like, I think he, but Vaziri, who would become the Iron Sheik, he was a handsome man. He was a big-ass yeah. dude. Yeah, she just, she would she say he had 180-pound washboard abs. I mean, he was a babe. He was a hunk. Yeah. He was fly. Not super fly. He was fly. <laughs> but he was super fly. I'm not gay, but, just, I, but I'd let him put his arms around me all night. That's just, you know, a good cuddle. While 90 Day Fiance plays on the television, which is our favorite show. What me show? And, me and the Sheik. Uh, 90 Day Fiance. I'm tempted That's to an just... Actual show. You, you've never heard of 90 Day Fiance? No. You probably don't have it. Like, we have a sling package, which... We haven't canceled yet. We'll redo the but we're we're doing the budget every two weeks, right? But we have a sling package. It's like uh, it's on a it's on the TLC cable network where there's many variations of it, but the original is that someone from another country comes to America and they have 90 days to decide to get married to this person or they go back to their home country. And it is like a petri dish of weird perspectives that Americans have of other places and that other places have of America. And as you can imagine, if like one country isn't as economically strong as America, that the people there perceive uh, that that everyone in America is just driving Ferraris and shit and then get a rude awakening when they get here and they're like, yeah. how come these aren't the finest linens? And it's like, yeah, we sell that, but it's kind of like a crock of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> But then you got people who are like really in love, right? And I mean, obviously, a lot of these people are met through websites. But you do have people who, who maybe someone took a trip to Russia or a European country or Thailand, and they met someone and they and they fell for them. 
and the person comes to America and they're like, look, I love you and I made this big change, but can we go back to my country? Like everyone just assumes that I'm like, should just be grateful to be standing in another country. Right. Nothing's greater. A kill not a goddamn thing is greater than how we do things right here in America. Uh, where no- we do everything. Everything we do is we do it right. Yeah, Other which, places we're wrong. Gosh, we nail it. Our medical system is yeah. not like fragile in any way. You know, second to none. Oh, nailing it. If by none you mean all the other first world yeah. countries. But yeah, it's a great show. I think, you know, reality shows, they get a little too repetitive. I feel like when you watch one, they're constantly previewing the thing that's going to happen at the end of the episode. All of these reality shows, only talking about the ones I like, which are like 0.1% of all reality shows. I watched, I watched like three of them. And you could cut them all down to 20 minutes. Well, that's what they should do. Like, they should, I get it on broadcast television because of commercial breaks and all that crap. Yeah. That's how you kind of add it. But if it goes to streaming, cut all that crap out. I think you the can mo- take an hour show yeah. and cut it down to like 24 minutes if you get rid of all that. The modernization of viewing should result in a proper modernization of reality television and the way it's put together, or the way it's produced. I actually think that reality television has like really great potential, but we've yet to see something that is executed kind of in a thoughtful or artful manner. You know, it's like well, always artful. <laughs> it just but depends. I've heard that, uh, was it, uh, love is blind, which Schleen watched all of it. I only saw like 15 minutes of one episode and the reunion episode, but love is blind on Netflix. Apparently kind of, Get, it eliminates all that stuff we were just talking about because it's streaming and yeah. because there's no commercials like there's no recap stuff there's no having to rewatch things over again when they come back from commercial break like all that stuff the long pauses as they go to commercial um, it's all done away with for the most part so you get a very streamlined version is that the show where they're like in different rooms in a building and they're communicating on social media I don't know if it's social media. I, I know the premise is they're in pods, adjacent pod, and they're able to talk to one another. And they're blind. But they can't see. Yeah, but they can't see one another. Yeah. Um, and then after whatever the period of time is um, that they've been doing that, they can decide, you know, one person can decide to propose, and then that person – uh, has to decide if they want to say yes. If they say yes, then at that point they can actually see them. Uh, and everything, every every couple ends with a wedding. And at the actual wedding, that's when they ultimately make the decision of do I want to go through with this or no. <laughs> and do you ever, do you ever watch The Bachelor? I don't, but people never, love I've this never seen it in my entire life. I've seen like ten minutes, and I was like, I can't do this. Yeah. Like the reality TV I watch can be taxing sometimes. Like I can't add more to it. But what a fun journey we just went down. Let's talk about <laughs> the sheep. <laughs> By Egal Hecht, which we kind of went into his past. Obviously, he's from Iran, where wrestling was huge, and he was. And I thought he's it was from, pretty cool that he was the bodyguard for the Shah. Yeah, the Shah was the corrupt ruler that was deposed in the revolution in the seventies. And uh, 
But yeah. And then the Shah apparently allegedly off Takti. So, and there you go. Also, Studer revolts kind of also, there was a lot of turmoil going on and a lot of people were getting out while, while the getting's good. So the Sheik gets the fuck out of Iran. He goes to NYC. And then where do you want to go when you've just entered America? You're hit, you're, you're in New York City. Do you want to stay in New York City? You want to go anywhere? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? I mean, the next logical place, obviously, is Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, th that's what I'm thinking. If, if you're, I mean, yeah, you want to do New York, that's, you know, because it's New York. But after the Big Apple, like, that's a no-brainer. The next place you're going to go yeah. is Minnesota. Go from uh, the Big Apple to the the uh, the big snowbank. You know, is Minnesota the lake the lake state? Is that the Thousand Lake State? God, fuck if I know. Come on, you're supposed to know this shit. Not this shit, I know. So Sheik, in his bodacious buff bod, trains with Vern Gagne in 1973, along with guys like Ric Flair, all around the same time. We talked about Ric Flair last week, actually. And, can, um, can I say I yeah. very much enjoy the talking heads in this documentary? Yeah. Because they're all wrestlers. <laughs> yeah, or dudes that were in production or writing for wrestler. Like, yeah. I was like, Brother Love? <laughs> I haven't seen Brother Love in oh, like 20 plus years. <laughs> Bruce Pritchard is the most Vince McMahon sycophantic bootlicker in the industry. It's kind of pointless to hate on Vince McMahon in the wrestling industry. He's just like a force of nature that's there. It just becomes redundant when you complain about him too much. He's just, it's like like a tornado. He's just always going to be there. But like, yeah. but Pritchard is, I mean, I guess he's fine. He was probably, I mean, he was a part of things that were memorable in my wrestling childhood. Like Brother Love. I remember Brother Love very clearly. But at the same time, he's just like a guy that's, uh, he has a podcast with a guy named Conrad Thompson who hosts other wrestling themed podcasts where they talk about the history of wrestling. And he does podcasts with other old announcer, producer, pers wrestling personality types. And he does one with Bruce Pritchard. And Bruce Pritchard is just, well, it's always company line all the time. And WWE will fucking totally go full revisionist on their own history. And even if you got the network, which I do, uh, you'll notice that if you're savvy, you'll notice that they cut things out that are particularly embarrassing to them. And there's a lot that is oh, embarrassing. Yeah. But thankfully, we got the internet to, to explain to us where that embarrassing is. I mean, the thing is, they own, like, everything almost. Like, they've bought up so much as far as other wrestling organizations that they kind of can make their whole history if they want to, like... <laughs> Yeah. They, they, they control all of it. <laughs> you know, at some point, Vince McMahon was like a guy who saw 10 moves ahead. And now yeah. he's now he's a guy trying to make all the moves that he used to see stay relevant. Compared to most other companies, WWE is still the most successful. But, you know, in, in 10 years, we'll see what happens with that shit. Because somehow, wrestling became more popular again as indie shit started to grow. But when... The Sheik, the Iron Sheik, Vaziri, oh, he marries his wife, Carol, who loves his dick, and uh, but doesn't like other aspects of him. We'll get into that later. And But when you were a pro wrestler in this time, your life was devoted to that. You're constantly getting driven. 
Like he's going from Minnesota to the Dakotas, all over the place. He he even went up to the Hart family and like helped train people apparently. And that's like a that's like a a, a dungeon of pain in the Hart family dungeon up in Calgary. I can't imagine that lifestyle. But that the the old school wrestler lifestyle has always just been amazing to me. Being on the road three hundred days of the year or more. Yeah. And not even really getting paid that much to do it. And just putting your body through the ringer, being away from your family, like you have to love doing that to put yourself through it. The day he was married, he wrestled that afternoon. That is what you do. That's the life of a fucking pro wrestler. Then he became the Sheik. The Rock I is going to say that he wrestled during the day and then they got married in the ring. Like that's <laughs> what I thought that story was getting. You might as well. It's you know, female wrestling has grown so much. I'm actually grateful because of course a lot of wrestlers, male wrestlers hook up with female wrestlers or whatever preferred, you know, sexuality. It's gotta be so much easier to do it within the industry because they instinctively understand the life that you're going to do and hopefully yeah. you can be on the same promotions from time to time. But the Rock said that he met Sheik when he was nine years old. And was even babysat by him. And you know the dude went to the back and did like cocaine bumps. He would probably leave every like five minutes. I'll be right back. And do some coke bumps in the bathroom. And then he would come back like, All right, who wants to play? The Sheik is ready to play. (laughs) All right, Jabroni. I fuck you in the ass. You be humble. So obviously the Islamophobia is being played up. We're getting to the end of the 70s. Uh, Iran is the great American enemy at this point. Uh, it's okay if we sell armament, if high-ranking government officials sell armament to them, Iran-Contra. I'm still bitter about it. But there are enemies. No, I'll never let Iran-Contra go. We do that shit like a lot, and it isn't even discussed anymore. It was oh, controversial no. then. And like now, so the boy was like, "Yeah, we're all doing it. We're all selling." Yeah, that's just that's, we. That's how we work. That's our. But they're killing us, you fucks. <laughs> hey, uh, we'll sell you this gun to shoot us with. If that's not capitalism, I don't know what is. Right? <laughs> so Iran becomes the major enemy, and people. This is when you're getting people kind of think it's still real at this point, you know. Now we live in post kayfabe where everyone is, where most people understand that it's like a work and we're all just kind of paying attention to the theatrics and the physicality of it right? and judging it like that, which is really nice, you know, being able to contextualize that. It kind of makes me appreciate it more. But when I was a kid, I did think a lot of that shit was real or it, oh, totally. a common thing was said that was like, no, no, on the week shows, they they hold back, but the belt matches, they're real. I, I remember hearing that a lot when I was a kid. The belt matches are real. I think I ever heard that one. No? Did did you watch no. a lot of wrestling as a kid? Oh, yeah. Do you have your I never, dad? I never, heard, I never heard that particular explanation, dad, like that particular rationale. Did you watch it with like any dads or uncles, your sisters? Did they watch it? No, initially the the first wrestling I ever watched was WrestleMania three, and I was like blown away that my mom's boyfriend at the time ordered it on pay per view, 
And so I watched stuff with him, uh, but then eventually, thank God, they broke up. Uh, and then from that point on, it was I watched wrestling by myself yeah. until I met another friend of mine. Your first uh, girl. You're the first girl that paid attention well, to you, then suddenly wrestling died. That's what happened to me. I don't remember when. Actually, wrestling didn't die for me until my 20s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because when I was in high school, the lady at my mom's age, her husband was a huge wrestling fan, and they had one of those chips back then that you could get and put in your cable box so you could watch all the – it would unscramble all the pay-per-view back right. when it was actually scrambled. Oh, that's um, – I would always go over to their house and watch Royal Rumble – King of the Ring, WrestleMania, Survivor Series, like all that stuff. Um, and then on the weekends, I was watching, you know, everything that came on. The stuff that used to come on USA Network on Saturdays and the show that came on in syndication on Sunday. And then you had Monday Night Raw and Friday Night uh, Main Event. <laughs> yeah, Saturday um, Night's Main Event, like was, shit like that. Yeah, 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 Saturday Night, yeah. Good stuff. Uh, I remember as a kid, I'd ask my grandma, I was like, hey, can we pay 50, 60 bucks to get this pay-per-view to watch wrestling for three to four hours? Like, she would laugh at me. Like, the idea of doing that was just absurd to her. It was like, you're going to pay to watch more TV when we have just TV? You could just watch your Raws, okay? You could just watch your Raws. I don't understand but, you already have TV for free. <laughs> yeah. I kind of can't blame her. You know, especially considering the financial situations we were in and out of during the days. But like you understand, I understood why she didn't want to do it. But now I have access to these apps that literally have 40 years worth of these pay-per-views that I never got to watch. And it's like now I'm like, oh, I love all these gummy bears. Which ones do I eat first? You know, and you watch the first WrestleMania. Watched most of it. Yeah, I've watched. I think I've rewatched the first three. I've rewatched a lot of Shawn Michaels and Hitman matches. Oh, that's good stuff. That first WrestleMania is rough. Yeah, yeah. They're just kind of figuring it out. <laughs> the third one's the yeah. biggest one of all time. But isn't the first one... Well, that, that was that was my introduction. The first one was the Iron Sheik. Was that Iron Sheik or was that the second one? First one. Okay, so the Hogan against Iron Sheik in the first WrestleMania. Was it Hogan and Iron Sheik? I don't think it was Hogan. Who was it? I can't remember. I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. Well, you know, Jake the Snake's in this documentary, and, like, it's my favorite part. This guy, he, he, he pushed through, and he got the people, man. And his arrogance shone through, too. The way he talked to people. You know, he talked down to people. He's better than they are. That was the whole thing, man. You know, just an arrogant son of a bitch. It might be my favorite part. If, as a talking head, he looks glazed over. Notorious drug addict. He's been in and out of rehab. I think he's on the upswing last I heard right now. He actually put out a documentary a couple of years ago. And get this. Yeah, that was brutal to watch. Yeah, I heard it's like a more of a DDP yoga commercial than a real, which 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 is. Have you seen it? No. But around when that came out, and this is before I went full lapsed into wrestling again, 
uh, kind of leading up to being fully relapsed into wrestling, I was watching a lot of like old promotions and that's kind of what guided me back into wrestling. Like man, like, man, I used to love macho man, you know, but, um, drew before I fully relapsed, he does a radio show and he got some, an offer put into his lap to where he could, this documentary had just come out and Jake, the snake was going all over the place where he could to do interviews and shit. And Drew had an opportunity to talk to them. And even though he has a sports talk show, I figured he could make it work. But he offered me to interview Jake the Snake since he was touring for a documentary. But I hadn't seen the documentary. And I had heard about the DDPY commercial angle. And I was like kind of not feeling it, even though I loved Jake the Snake and other wrestling docs. Like beyond the mat, he's infamous in that one. Because he, what would I do, have Jake the Snake here? I wasn't fully back into wrestling yet. But I'd have Jake the Snake here and be like, so when you smoke crack in that hotel and be on the mat or talk about old wrestling shit, but I wouldn't know fucking it. So I just didn't. Yeah. It seemed interesting. Like, oh, I have an opportunity to interview Jake the Snake. But the opportunity drive, it was like within a 12 hour frame to move on the, the thing. And I just it would have just been re- uh, interviewing him for no reason. Now, yeah, that, the timing was off. now, where I'm at now, I'd probably figure it out. Yeah. Outside of quarantine rules anyway. But where I'm at now, I'd probably figure it out and talk to Jake the Snake. Everything he says in this documentary, he looks glazed over, by the way, as hell. I ain't saying he's doing blow and shit, but he looks like he just smoked like a whole blunt by himself. Yeah, he's definitely on something. And if that's all he's doing, more power to the guy, you know. But I understand that some people can't do certain things because it kind of gets their addiction brain going again i get that such hate was thrown onto the sheik that the sheik had to embody like his most negative opinions of like the american people that he saw he liked being in america he preferred it over iran especially the where where it was going but it didn't mean that like americans were like all great to him because they took that shit for real like people would spit on him and throw things to him and that's a sign of success in wrestling but it's got he talked to... about what was different kinds of heat. Yeah, that you yeah. want to have. And there's, you like, want... there's the heat that you want, where everyone's booing, and then there's the heat that you don't want, where they're yeah. trying to kill you. <laughs> yeah, or they're or they're changing the channel. There's heat where like go away yeah. heat. You want the heat where people are willing to pay fifty bucks to go into an arena and watch you get body slammed. That's the kind of heat, and you get to play a coward. Man, it'd be, being a heel would be so much fucking fun. But we he goes to a, a, a convention in Los Angeles, and we see, like, Bret Hart. He said he trained with the Sheik at age 16, which is wild. And then yeah. Coco Beware. Remember Coco Beware? Oh, the bird? Man, I used to love Coco Beware. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the old pay-per-views that I revisited, he wasn't. he's not holding the bird very much. I think the bird probably rightfully uh, is freaked out at the crowds. I don't think the bird I was, was imagined. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the? Uh, do you remember the pile driver? The video that they did. No. So back in the eighties, this was when at peak Hulkamania. They've got the Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling cartoon airing on Saturday mornings. Um, they put out an album. This was not too long after the Super Bowl Shuffle. Mm-hmm. With the uh, Chicago right. Bears, yeah, yeah, eighty-five so, Bears. 
WWF, yeah, WWF decided we're going to kind of do a similar thing. So they recorded oh, a w- this song called Pile Driver. Oh my gosh. You know. Oh, yes. Coco Puerto sings lead on it. <laughs> we should really look it up because I haven't thought about it since I was a kid. It's probably going to outro this episode, if I'm being honest. Pile Driver song with sung lead by Coco Beware. Could Coco sing pretty good? Sometimes love is like a slow dance. You can tiptoe around, but don't make a sound. You can make a little sound romance. It's it's hard to remember. He wasn't horrible, um, well, but he was know, he was no Rick Astley. Let's just put it that way. Coco Beware tells the story of the Iron Sheik. Sheik is over and working out. He's working out with his clubs. So Vince walks over and says, Sheik, yes, sir, Baba, yes, sir. He stands like that. He said, you tested positive for cocaine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> God, we see Nikolai Volkov. I have to say, I'm the fact that and this is, I'm, I don't want this to come across as sounding racist, but. Oh boy, here we go. So, <laughs> don't you love when they start? When that's like, preface he's like that. Like he's very much like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the he's fact like, that he's never been able to, like, that accent has not changed at all since that's the first true. day he yeah. stepped in. It, <laughs> it does seem very, very similar. Yeah. I guess he communicates his feelings just fine. I would go game. They have to have subtitles for him throughout the entire documentary. Otherwise, you would miss a lot of what he's actually saying. Uh, We see Nikolai Volkov in here, who he teamed up with. Volkov was a Russian Russian immigrant. So, of course, he's a Russian. So, put a furry hat on him. And there you go. Hey, you're (laughs) Russian, right? Hey, get the caustic furry hat shit. Get that furry hat shit on the Russian guy. But they were We're very... the Iranian guy. We hate we hate both these countries right now. We should put them together. If we go to Iran and wrestle, we'll be like the twin senators. That's what they'll call us. We'll be in suits. Yeah, what is what was Nikolai's Volkov's thing supposed to be? Like He was a rut he was a he, communist. He was just so he was, but he that was it. Like he wasn't meant to be like a general or he's like a, a soldier or anything like that. He was just he was a comic book villain from the 60s. He was like a Soviet Cold War dude. He could have been a bread maker for all we know. His character. Yeah. yeah. We don't know his origin story. <laughs> now, he's got he's married, he's got kids, and he's got uh, grandkids. And I you're not a very you're not a great dad if you're a wrestler, let's be honest. Can I be real here? No. If you're a professional wrestler touring, especially on a grueling WWF slash WWE schedule, you're probably not going to be that great. But they did say that Sheik, which is kind of opposite of how Ric Flair was. When Ric Flair had downtime, he couldn't stand to be in his home and to himself. He had to run away as fast as he could. But the Sheik really did, when he was able to be home, it was said that he really did focus hard on the kids. He did seem like a really fun dad, for sure. He did. Unless you were a daughter trying to bring a boy home. That's true. Then not so much. Then you're, then he's going to get, <laughs> he will literally drag you out in the backyard and put you in the camel clutch. 
<laughs> and who's going to come back? You're not getting a second date after somebody goes through that. So Vince McMahon, he's able to consolidate a lot of power, buys it, buys the company from his dad. And pro wrestling, the timing is perfect because pro wrestling explodes. And Hulkamania is starting to explode. And McMahon is recruiting celebrities to show up on this on this idea of WrestleMania. And wrestling in the 80s, uh, we'll let Jake the Snake tell it in clip form. Wrestling in the, in the 80s was just, it was crazy. And once you went to WWF, fuck, you couldn't go nowhere. Because you're everywhere. It was a magical time. I mean, the excitement, the buildings were, all of them were sold out. But Bob Backlund, the original WWF champion, was this guy named Bob Backlund. And he won the title in 1978. This is when Vince Sr. was going, owned the company. And he held that for six years. Can you imagine a champion? What was his move? Like the something chicken wing? Yeah, so it's like some hold move, right? You remember what it's I can't remember. I'm not. It's like something. Shot, like it's called the cross chicken wing. But can you imagine having a, a champion in a company for six straight years? Yeah, that's insane. That would never happen now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I guess because the televised wrestling was very territorial at that time. And I think the WWF was probably a, at that time, probably a part. It was representing Connecticut and the Northeast area. In the rest, in the Greater Wrestling Alliance, so dudes, so champions would go to each other's territories to put over guys in other territories. So if you're only watching um, wrestling through this local filter, then it could work that somebody like Bob Backlund could be champ for six years because you probably wouldn't see Bob Backlund very much unless he came to your town, which is how it was how it yeah. worked out. But Backlund. Um, he said he wouldn't leave the title to Hulk Hogan because he didn't consider Hulk Hogan a proper athlete in wrestling. But he would leave it to the Iron Sheik because he was a legit wrestler. Which is funny, that, that sense of puritanism. Love, love the fact that he did not drop that belt to Hulk Hogan. Yeah, well... <laughs> that makes me... <laughs> you know, Hulk Hogan's... He's in his elderly years now, but not a, there's a lot of people with, like... Hogan was, he would bury a lot of dudes to lift himself up, you know. The whole thing about Hulkamania was, uh, you know, you wrestled him one time, man. You're done. And that's how they built the Hulk. They fed him every great piece of talent the world ever knew. And he had it caused a lot okay. of bad blood. And Backlund looked at him and was like, I, this guy is nothing but like some steroids and some squats, you know, like, and Backlund's a guy who probably started like, like the Iron Sheik started up in amateur wrestling and then had that to back up their credentials in pro wrestling. So yeah. it's, so it's funny. This guy who's built as the biggest enemy of America has the respect of the elders of the wrestling community. And this new fucker Hulk Hogan. Nah, dude. I can't sit through a Hulk Hogan match. Like it, it amazed me that I, I watched him as a kid, but like I those are those matches I cannot go back and rewatch. So boring. They are. I mean, he sucked as a wrestler. They were clothesline after clothesline, bounce off the ropes, clothesline. 
Sometimes a double clothesline if two guys are coming after him. Leg drop and then maybe a headlock. And then he'd have that comeback moment where he's like absorbing the energy of the Hulkamaniacs. And he would body slam you. That was the entirety of a Hulk Hogan match. Did he even go to the top rope? I don't even remember him climbing ropes or anything. Oh, Oh, God, no. (laughs) But if you were a dumb redneck kid in 1985, you were like, yeah, Hulk Hogan is amazing. I wish he were my dad instead of the dad that I have now. That's what kids thought of when they looked at Hulk Hogan. (laughs) I should drink all that milk and eat the vitamins and the cereal. Remember Pasta Mania? Pasta Mania? Pasta Mania. It was his restaurant that he opened in the Mall of America. Oh, fuck no. I don't remember that. I I started. (laughs) That sounds amazing. I I think it died very quickly. I started watching the WCW (laughs) Nitro episodes. And the first episode of Nitro, they're doing it at the Mall of America. And Hulk Hogan's Pasta Mania restaurant is there. Like, how does that work? What is it? What do you mean pasta mania? Is it like spaghetti or like what kind of the different pastas? I don't know. But a promo was shot in the pasta mania restaurant where Hulk Hogan is pushing pasta mania real hard. I don't recall. Pasta mania was not like here. Here are our dishes that we will be serving at pasta mania. It was just like, I'm Hulk Hogan, brother. And look at this clip art of pasta behind me, brother. You want to eat pasta mania, brother. And it shows up on that, the first. That, I first... Think that that is your best impression that you've ever done in the entire time that I've known you. Thank you, thank you. I tip, I tip my hat to you for that one, oh, sir. Thank you. That was thank good. You. And you're not even wearing a hat, so it's kind of a big deal that you would tip one. It when you're not wearing it. First, it's a bigger first, deal. Virtual bow. Virtual bow. <laughs> but yeah, so after that first episode of WCW Nitro, they don't mention Pasta Mania ever again i think that shit was done in like two weekends like pasta mania like they just didn't they didn't sell any food it was just like look at hogan's hairy face don't you want to buy pasta and they thought it's interesting where like somebody who seems like they've caught lightning in a bottle is like oh well i'm sure this is also lightning in a bottle it's like no and no that's actually a pile of diarrhea but fortunately you're godly rich and can just move on from this there's a limit to even what you can sell. So the Sheik, the Iron Sheik, wins the title at Madison Square Garden in 1984. And this is a good thing because uh, if any, between heels and faces, if you want anyone to hold a belt for a fairly long time, you want it to be a heel. So you can constantly just build up that heat, that animosity, to just make it steam up so a little... So the, the tea kettle of fan base will be just more pumped to watch you get beaten by Hulk Hogan at the 84-85 WrestleMania. So when Sheik loses to Hogan, everyone hated Sheik so much that when Hogan was able to put him down, that's when Hulkamania officially like lost its shit. And Hulkamania, I mean Hulk Hogan became, even if no one watched pro wrestling, Everyone knew who Hulk Hogan was. And a lot of those people, because Hulk Hogan got put over by the Iron Sheik, knew who the Iron Sheik was, even if they knew very little about wrestling at the time. But there's some shit going on with the the, the NWA promotion who was bitter because WWF left. And Vern Gagne, the Sheik says that, 
I thought this was a joke when they were talking heads about it, but Vern Gagne was so upset at Vince taking off from the NWA that and consolidating talent around the country that Gagne asked Sheik to break Hogan's leg. I was ready to have a challenge with Hulk Hogan to lose my belt to him. And Mr. Gagne called me and said to me, Kosro, don't drop the belt to him, break his fucking leg, take the belt, come back to Minnesota. He gonna take it me $100,000. But she- Yeah, that was insane. But that's what that sh- I mean, old school imagine, shit was like. Can you imagine how different things would be if he had actually done that? No Hulkamania. There'd be no Hulkamania. I mean, yeah. The, because I mean, we, re- we even have wrestling as we know it right now. It's hard to say. I think we would. It just wouldn't be Hulk Hogan going up. Because if you broke the the the, the perspectives of wrestling at the time, if fucking Iron Sheik broke Hulk Hogan's leg in that ring, then suddenly you see this very tall guy who looks like a superhero. Suddenly he can't walk and he's got to be dragged and carried out of that arena. It's like that, that makes, during that time especially, that makes a big difference. Now you see, and it will totally affect the perspective by management of that person. And and a lot of times this did happen to dudes and it was just a bad break. Nowadays you're post kayfabe and it's like when you see someone get injured, it's almost, it's like watching someone get injured in basketball or football or baseball. It's like, ah, oh, shit, that sucks. Let's hope we, he gets back in time. But back then the outward show of strength, you're supposed to be able to walk out as you walked in. You know, that show yeah. of strength and stature was just a tremendous deal. So, yeah, if the Iron Sheik broke Hulk Hogan's leg, we probably wouldn't even be talking about Hulk Hogan. It's quite possible we would not. No. I'm trying to think of any other wrestler during that time period that they had in their stable who I'm not... Even back then, I wasn't a huge Hulk Hogan fan, but he was ever-present. Like, he was... You thought of wrestling, you thought of Hulk Hogan. I didn't hate him, but he just wasn't my favorite wrestler. Yeah, but I'm hard pressed to think of any other wrestler during that time period who had that same level of charisma. Yeah, that well, he had in front of the camera. Because for him, it was, it was all the spots. It was the the promos that he did more so than the actual stuff that he did in the ring. Well, Flair had the charisma on the heel side of things, but that was different. And the Ultimate Warrior, I think, was coming up. I think he would be like rival Hogan a few years later in terms of popularity. Ultimate Warrior. Don't get me started on that guy. <laughs> Another guy who can't really wrestle. But he was so intense, <laughs> yeah. though. He died a few years ago. He he died a very bad yeah. man. He had some hangups, man. A lot of people will... Well, they did him. eventually... He did um, men fences with Vince McMahon, and they inducted him into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. And he showed for that. Um, but, yeah, there's a... There's a documentary with him as well, uh, where he just kind of talks about how he's never, he felt like he never got the actual respect that he should have gotten as a wrestler. But I'm like, I mean, yeah, you were great when I was a kid because you're like a superhero, um, but your matches weren't great. Like, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. had basically two things that you did. It was like Hogan. That was it. They were perfect to wrestle each yeah. other because they were both very simple. I mean, sometimes you do need a match where it's like, just big man power, power, boom, boom, pin. You know, as they were a wrestling partners for for a bit. Uh, I remember he uh, Hogan and Macho Man were like the twin powers. Remember that shit? Yeah, 
the Miss yeah. Elizabeth drama. Who can forget? I was but, a macho, a macho man fan. There might have been great wrestlers we never heard of that got the squash from Hogan. Jake the Snake has, to me, the best quote in the whole documentary when they talk about the whole thing. Gagne telling him he should break Hogan's leg, and Jake was like, "I think it would have helped help wrestling if he broke his leg because." Uh... I'm just a crude bastard. I like heat. You know, I, I think the bad guys have to come up every now and then. Yeah, he should have done it. <laughs> I'm just, he said, I'm, he said, I'm just a crude bastard. I like yeah. heat. <laughs> yeah. He said, he said, he said the bad guys got to win sometimes. You know, Jake the Snake is a manager on yeah. the AEW promotion. And he's, uh, AEW has introduced Lance Archer into their uh, promotion. And Jake the Snake is his manager, and he's out there putting uh, Lance Archer over because Lance Archer is this tall Texan with like a long mohawk that they call the Murder Hawk. And uh, but Jake the Snake is now, right now, even in quarantine, with separated, <laughs> even in quarantine, is doing these rest uh, these promos, and he still sounds badass and scary as shit. You guys seen what he was doing. Oh, and you were afraid. Well, I can certainly get that. I mean, right now I'm still paying for doctor bills uh, from his last training session. My God. Caesar, let us do it. Give us a chance. Bring your people. You know, all, all of them. Bring whoever you want. Like, even to this day, just doing these <laughs> promos. Because Jake the Snake, I would I would love to do a documentary on him because he just, everyone had, like, an intensity, but he was the guy that just kind of, like, slowly and deliberately, like, he was like a snake, man. And it was weird because he didn't, have, like, if you look at his body type back then, there was nothing special. I mean, this is the age of, like, roids and everyone trying to be as big as possible. And he had this like really almost like reptilian sort of build to his body. It was long and lanky. There wasn't a lot of bulk to it. He even had a little bit of a pot belly. Like, but somehow he made it work. He threw those DDTs on so friggin' fast. Yeah. Back when the DDT was a finishing move, now you'll see a DDT just happen like yeah. like a lariat in a match, you know. But yeah, when Jake the Snake yeah. DDT'd you, it was like, oh shit, oh shit, that dude's dead. <laughs> but he had, gr- and he he would always manage to do the DDT when you least expected it. Like he didn't, he very yeah. seldom set up the DDT. He, oh, they'd be he, in the middle of doing something, and he would just reverse it on him and just boom, drop him. <laughs> he was just so good at his end of performative body language, and it was hard. And also, yeah. he carried a giant fucking bow constrictor. He might have been one of the, for, for me, one of the first heels that was like a heel, but you thought he was really cool. Like, he was probably the first heel oh, I liked. Yeah. Jake the Snake. So, Damn, I would have watched Jake the Snake. So, Iron Sheik, he, uh, he and Duggan, do you remember this story about he and Duggan getting arrested for weed? One bad mistake I did with the hacksaw Jim Duggan, everything changed, and I lost a million, million dollars. I don't remember that half, like, they make it seem like it was something that was really big in the news, I mean, but I was a kid and I wasn't really watching news. 
old days was different than today. New Jersey is against the law. You cannot drink and drive. Haxa was a driver. I was just a passenger. We not supposed to be travel together. And I'm wrestling with him tonight. I was relatively new to the WWEF back then. I came in for WrestleMania 3, where I hit the Sheik. I had 93,000 people in the Pontiac Silverdome standing up cheering USA, USA. The place was rocking. I was getting a big push from the company, and everything looked really rosy. Yeah. So, I'm not surprised. You know, I didn't hear anything about it until I watched this. Flying to Newark Airport. There's the Iron Sheik. She came up to me and said, uh, I have no credit card. Maybe you give me a ride to the show. We get to rent a car and start heading out of the Newark airport. The Sheik says, uh, maybe we stop and get some St. Pauli girl beer. Sheik's drinking those cold St. Pauli girl beers. Okay, Sheik, I'll, I'll have a beer. I'll just clip the fucking story. It's easier that way. Old days. A good girl travel with a good girl, bad girl go with a bad girl to protect the business. No sooner do I take the hit off a beer, Jersey State Troopers like going by me. He's signaling and I'm like, I didn't see him. And the Sheik's like, he wants us to pull over. I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> the trooper leaned in the car and said, step out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> The little officer said to Mr. Sheik, WWF, I know I cannot beat you, but if you do anything foolish, I'm going to use the, my gun. I said, no, officer, I'm not going to do nothing. Says so the time was 6 o'clock afternoon, and show supposed to start at 8 o'clock. So we had two hours. They took us to the, the police department. They put a hackster, Jim Duggan, hand, top of table, my hand, top of table, his hand, handcuffed to my hand, so we can't do nothing. They take us in, now they gotta search us. They went through my stuff, I was cool. And uh, Sheikdi opened up his wallet, boom, two more grams of cocaine in two separate containers. And uh, they took him in front of a judge. Finally, they brought him back, he got bonded out, got a bail bond. So we drove to Asbury Park and we're like, well, maybe nobody knows. <laughs> so we actually wrestled that night in Asbury Park and didn't tell nobody. So I called my wife, I said, honey, I said, I got popped, but I don't think anybody knows about it. My wife calls me at 7.30 the next morning, everybody knows. So, uh, but eventually everyone's star fades and Sheik, you know, he did an he did a big job putting over Hulk Hogan, but at some point, you know, you're just buried by Hogan. Then what else do you do with the Sheik? And then he still has to make a living, so he has to go to the Indies. So imagine seeing this guy on like the biggest stage in wrestling, and then he's playing in a veterans hall in front of like a maybe fifty people. That was suddenly the life of the Iron Sheik and Jake the Snake. Is all is throughout this documentary just dropping gems in terms of like what it's like in the wrestling life. <laughs> yeah, Ian. Sucks, man. You have to do independence, and uh, these independents are high school gems again, man. Uh, really, you know, it's not fun, but you still do because you got to provide, man. Real tragic. He had a daughter. One of his daughters, Marissa Vaziri. She wanted to be a female wrestler. He was the only one of his kids that wanted to follow in his footsteps. But unfortunately, she was murdered by a guy 
she was trying to break up with that he was dating. This guy she started dating ended up just being a, a horrifying piece of shit. And his daughter ended up getting murdered. And it's like, gosh. I kind of wondered where they were going to go with that. Because early on in the documentary, when you meet his daughters, they kept showing pictures, and I kept seeing three kids. Yeah. And But they only had two. And so I was like, oh, one of these stories is going to end in tragedy. It's yeah. You, like, after so many documentaries that I've watched at this point, like you can see those coming. Like, oh, here it comes. Sad, super fucking sad story. I mean, the Sheik, Iron Sheik, I don't want to just call him the Sheik. I'm still angry about this title. He's the Iron Sheik. <laughs> now, he, he had drug problems before. Now he's in full drug spiral. And he's fucking, and we see him smoking a hookah and just getting pissed off. Say you're sorry. No. I'm sorry, but you know where I'm, where I'm coming from. I don't give a fuck where you come from, but don't never insult the legend. He's often just randomly pissed off, and then and then it's like negated very quickly. Yeah, and, that's the drugs, man. It's that back and forth, like Jekyll and Hyde kind of shit. Self medication, you got to do it. But the Sheik is talking to the movie, then kind of kind of does a shift. We get into the past, and I really liked this part of the, the past part of the movie. It's kind of more of a typical documentary. And then for the rest of the movie, we get cracked out, crack cocaine, Iron Sheik, for pretty much the rest of the film. Seeing Iron Sheik smoke crack is, was a very strange it, and troubling experience for me. There's one point where he goes to, I guess it's the director, who's also like a manager. Was I getting people combined here? I felt like I was getting people confused. Am I being racist that I'm merging Persians together? Because I think the director is also of Iranian descent. But is he different from... They're two brothers. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought they looked fucking alike, but I was like, am I just combining the same person? Am I am I like no, not... Very, very similar. And I'm not sure if they're twins or what. But yeah, they're, they're definitely brothers. I had the same reaction. I was like, wait, that's, that's is that the same guy? And I had to rewind. I thought, oh, no, that's, they're brothers. They have the same last name. So we, so we see his... I guess they're like director handler of this project. And then he says, so the Iron Sheik says to him, I want to go to my ghetto, get my medicine to go home. If you cannot take me, take a fucking walk. I want to go to my ghetto to get my medicine and go home. If you cannot take me, take a fucking walk. And Jake the Snake said, I remember a wrestler telling me that it made him sick at himself that he's the one that turned Sheik on the cocaine. And he hated himself for it. Because Sheik, like myself, we like that shit. And uh, if I like it, I'm gonna fucking have it. And it ruined my life. And it didn't help Sheik's either. Iron Sheik went off on the drug deep end. Like, he went hard. I'm curious as to who that wrestler is. I bet it's, gosh, who who can I guess it is? It's probably not, Macho Man always looked keyed up. Sure. But I don't know if, hmm. You know, so many wrestlers did I mean, there's did so blow. many juice from back then. Yeah, it's really hard to say. They were all doing it. They were all doing blow together if they could. But we get audio. Because oh, 
they left the mic on when the sheet goes in to score a crack. And you can hear him be like, hey, weren't you a wrestler? He's like, yeah, man, the sheik, man. That's good, good brown one, right, babe? Good brown. Good quality, right, babe? It's just 40, and I give him 10 tomorrow. Do you have a lighter for me? Give me one lighter. Yeah, give me one lighter, please. It's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Give me a lighter. Give me your lighter. He's very like... Just 40, he, I'll, I'll bring you 10 tomorrow. Yeah, he's very charismatic in that way. To where he could just kind of use his chicness, his iron chicness to kind of just even with someone who, when he's obviously in a vulnerable position, he's addicted to fucking crack. Yeah. He's still kind of on in that way. Apparently he used to do this. This movie shows a transition period from what it seems. We see a sheik walking around with his old belts because when you win the belt, you get like a, a version of it that you can keep at your home forever. And he's walking around with the belt in public, which if I had the any world heavyweight championship, I would fucking go to the Taqueria with it draped over my shoulder. <laughs> Be like, yeah, I'm the champion. Can I get uh, three lingua tacos and a uh, glass bottle of Pepsi, please? But he goes to public places with the belt. He's very recognizable. And then he's like, sells eight by 10, signed eight by 10 pictures of him. He's not setting up tables at conventions. He's not telling the uh, the Cheesecake Factory that he's on his way. He just goes to the Cheesecake Factory <laughs> with his 8x10, sits there, and as people approach him, he's like, do you want to buy an 8x10? And that's how, like, he, he he's basically scoring crack money for it. That's how he makes his drugs money. It's crazy because, I mean, he obviously, at least for that, leading up to, at a certain point, he actually ends up, separating from his wife for a period of time. But at that time, like they live in a nice house. Yeah. I don't know if they they had savings. I don't know maybe if she does anything for a living, like, but they seem to be living comfortably. Yeah. And so the fact that he's going out to sell eight by tens to get drug money. Yeah. It was just so strange to me. Maybe he's budgeted consciously. I guess they're not I guess they won't give him any money. I guess. Yeah, that's, that's what it boils down to. They stop giving him money. So that's and it, it's more expensive to get divorced. Let's be honest as well, because he's gonna have to pay alimony and shit. Because she could just be like, "What? He's the Iron Sheik. He he has income, but he it's probably all budgeted." And he's like, "Okay, I won't have to go through the bank account. I don't have to explain withdrawals from the bank. If I just go to this uh, Mr. Gaddy's over here, which is a local pizza buffet chain that is on the way." That is, it's an endangered local pizza buffet chain. He'll go to the Mr. Gaddy's, sign five uh, eight by tens at the Mr. Gaddy's for kids, and he can go score some rock that day. I think yeah. that's, I think it's just him like budgeting his time. It's a responsible way to be a crackhead, really. You got to give it to him. If you're going to be a crackhead, that's a good way to do it without. Burning the family more than being a crack addict already does. Yeah, yeah. But we see, in the last half hour of this movie, we see like 20 arguments where he's arguing with his wife, whether he's arguing with his producer, where he's talking about how it's my fucking body, I'm in constant pain every fucking day, I just want to do my drugs, goddammit. And he'll be like, I love you, I love you, I'm sorry, and then, but like you said, the back and forth of the drug thing. Yeah. Just instantaneous. Just one when he's arguing with his manager, 
where he's like, why are you yelling at me? He's like, I'm sorry. I love you. I love you. And then he says something else. And then he like cuts his eyes at him. Like <laughs> if he was able to get up quickly, yeah, he would have decked him. Like, right. It's crazy shit, man. And then suddenly we have post rehab chic, post rehab iron chic. And, and now he's become famous for threatening celebrities on his Twitter account and a viral video of him threatening Kramer for being racist on a comedy stage. Kramer, you no good low like son of a bitch, a skinny bastard. I'm gonna come, put you, suplex you, I'll put you in the camera crutch, and I'm gonna fuck your ass, and then you're gonna be humble. And then he goes on Howard Stern, and then he's on that show Kenny versus Spinny. Did you ever fucking watch Kenny versus Spinny? It was like a no, show. I don't even know what that is. I think it was on Comedy Central. It was like these two dudes they would prank each other. It was a it was a it's show like a Tom with these, Green kind of thing. Yeah, but it was just these two dudes against each other. Kenny versus Spinny. Uh, he started a parody of Zero Dark Thirty called Zero Dark Dirty. Which sounds like a porn version of Zero Dark Thirty. It really does. <laughs> Could be. Jury's still out. My favorite uh, tweets that they showed of his, because that's, he actually makes a good living just being a social media personality now. But my favorite tweet that they showed was one that said, Doctor Who gives a fuck. Uh, we see him on that His show. <laughs> he is funny. He was on that show at, <laughs> at Midnight's, the point show where Chris Hardwick would yell points. Yes, points. Remember that fucking show? You remember Chris Hardwick? I never watched that show. Man, you're so cool. I love Chris Hardwick, yeah. Yeah, he's fucking annoying. <laughs> I love Chris Hardwick from being a VJ on MTV. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you, ever, uh, did you ever watch that dating show Shipmates? This was a long time ago. In the, I think the early to oh, mid-2000s. It, that sounds familiar, but I don't it, know that I ever actually... Was it an MTV dating show? I don't think it was MTV. It was a reality dating show hosted by... It was basically people who would uh, meet on a ship and have like a day date and determine at the end if they were cool with each other or by the next day if they were willing to give it a shot. And it, was, it would be hosted by Chris Hardwick, who was in a studio, and he'd make like snarky comments over the dates and he was very bloated and he admits to being a severe alcoholic at the time. And yeah, he, he would, he would ho- Chris Hardwick would host this show and it would, and it looked like he was just going to blow his brains that. out. He had this look like, I hate my I life. I'm, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. And then it became a stand up where he became even somehow more annoying than he was uh, during a singled out era. Sorry if anyone there's any Chris Hardwick oh, fans God, out there. I forgot about Singled Out. Yeah. Completely forgot about Singled Out. He was the host on that. I know it's a podcasting sin to criticize Chris Hardwick. He's not my cup of tea. He's a, he's an annoying shit. There, I said it. I, Hard- did, I did enjoy. I, I did enjoy hearing uh, Mark Marin kind of go on a little bit of a rant about Chris Hardwick when he was on uh, Dax Shepard's podcast. Which was pretty entertaining. <laughs> Wait, who was uh, Mark Marin went on a rant on uh, Chris Hardwick? Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of, yeah. I can connect with uh, 
Mar- Marin's anxieties and embitterments <laughs> and the shit he has to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> Remember when that Toronto mayor was smoking crack? Rob Ford, rest in peace. I, yeah, that crazy dude who yeah. refused to like. Yeah, look, <laughs> that, was, of, that was a wild. <laughs> one of his citizens, one of the Toronto citizens, one of his constituents, offered him a crack pipe. And he broed out with them. I don't know. I I, I think Rob Ford's kind of cool. I think I'm not very high on a lot of politicians, but I think Rob Ford, he's an okay guy or was he's passed away. But the Sheik makes a moment out of that because that was the big thing in that day that Toronto mayor Rob Ford smoked crack. Yeah, the man is uh, uh, eat the cheeseburger and uh, smoke crack. What kind of role model is for the Toronto city? Yes, points. Also, uh, the Sheik is the first person to throw around Jabroni. The Rock took it from him. And that's pretty much it. He's he's a face. He's a full-on super face by the end of the documentary. And that's the story yeah, of, the, of the fucking Sheik by Igal Hecht. It should be called the Iron Sheik, but it's called the Sheik. Akil, we don't rate documentaries at a star rating scale. We do it in the Herzog rating scale. It's thundering. And yeah, shut, up, shut up, Siri. I need to bring my plants in. You're going to give this one through five Herzogs. I'm going to give it one through five Herzogs. We'll do this quickly and wrap this up. And uh, yeah. And for, for best out of ten for this documentary, The Sheik, directed by Egal Hecht. I've taken off a, a Herzog because it's not called The Iron Sheik. So I'm saying that for one. And I like this. I like the Iron Sheik himself. I like Vaziri himself. I actually had a lot of fun hanging out with him. It seemed like this is almost the tale of two different movies. I rarely say this because I think a lot of documentary series don't need to be as long as they are. But I think this could be could have been a decent like four or five part documentary series where you go point by point. Yes, points. <laughs> into his career and then like the last two episodes are like ah he's a crackhead and you go full hard and you can work that as like a reveal it just seemed like if the movie was going like this and then it went and then did this and the only consistency was the cool shit that jake the snake said in it but all in all it was a fun movie because the iron sheik is a fun dude and he is funny and he'll fuck you in the ass and humble you so i'm gonna give it uh (laughs) I'm going to give the old Herzog average the, a three, a solid three. Respectable. How about you, Akil? Um, I, I agree with a lot of points you made. I do feel like there was more stuff to mine. Um, an hour and a half wasn't quite enough. Um, they devoted a lot of time to his sort of – I would like to see them devote more time to his early years, pretty much more time to everything. They just sort of – they hacked his life up into like four pieces yeah. and then only spent like 20 minutes on each of those pieces. Um, so that was really the biggest flaw was just the, it didn't flow the way it could have. It sort of, it was jarring when it jumped from like all of a sudden he's running in the Indies and, and oh yeah, then it's his, also his daughter, she was murdered. We're going to yeah. spend like two minutes on that. He's going to go to the graveyard for the first time. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. 
Um, and then we're just going to move on. So now he's smoking drugs, he's smoking crack. Like, it just sort of... <laughs> the pacing was off. Really quickly. <laughs> it, it wasn't very smooth in, in, in its layout. No, and, yeah, and I think particularly with the drug thing, I think that the fact that the guys who... The brothers, they're like his managers or whatever, are also producers on the movie. Yeah. They obviously have been following him for a long time because some of this footage goes back to like 2006. Um, mm-hmm. So they've been following him around. And I feel like that their just childhood affection for him, maybe they sort sure. of didn't want to spend too much time on the drug thing. And out of respect for him, even though the whole thing with his daughter, like yeah. that's a lot of story that can be told. They gave nothing on that. And right. I think that's why. I think it was because of the relationship with him. So because of that, I'm going to say three as well. Like, okay. I just felt like that they could have dug a little deeper because he's definitely lived a very interesting life. Totally. And uh, I, I can forgive the producer and director being in it because towards the end, he was saying his real kooky shit. And it's, and it's, and a lot of the best moments were him like yelling at them. So I could kind of forgive them for being present yeah. in it. But yeah, the, the pacing yeah. was on it. And when it was all done, you did feel like there could have been a little more in terms of understanding who this guy was. Because suddenly he was a goofy Twitter personality, which, but good for him. I'm glad the Iron Sheik's out there making it his way and as healthy as he can be. So you give it three, I give it three. That's a slightly above average six out of 10 Herzog documentary. And um, I know a lot of people talk this up at the time it came out and but i guess now that it's settled and we're able to have a sobered look at it in our quarantine existence it didn't pop off quite as much as we wanted but do we love watching yeah. wrestlers smoke crack on film yeah we do and that's probably why it got a six that's as, undeniable. and that's probably why i got a six as opposed to five out of ten so well kill let's do this again very soon and we will talk I think we should. Hopefully this quarantine thing will not make us have to do this indefinitely for like the next six months. Yeah. But I do miss actually hanging out with you in person. I I know. Same here. I want to, I kind of like, I I keep having to remind myself that I can't just go to my friend's houses, which I'm fairly a homebody anyway, but I do have to keep reminding myself like, Oh, I can't just go over to Eldridge's house and see their kid or anything like that. I'm like, I got to fucking yeah. wait, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but we'll do this soon. I think um, being a fan favorite co-host, people like your episodes. So we can keep ourselves busy with some documentaries. Maybe we can bank some fun shit, but nothing too fucking sad because I can't handle super sad right now. I had to cancel true crime. No, I can't either. I had to cancel True Crime Month until uh, I'm keeping it light. Until pandemic is lifted, we'll 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 try to keep it as light as we can. Although documentaries sometimes yeah. do, much like The Sheik, have a moment that's like, oh my god, that's heartrending and sad. Murder and drug addiction, but he's on Twitter. Yay, Doctor Who the <laughs> fuck cares? <laughs> All right, buddy. Always good to talk and keep on docking. Uh, I kind of got sidetracked in my brain. What was I saying?
What was I saying? Jake the Snake. Jake the Snake. I think he would have helped help wrestling if he broke his leg because uh I'm just a crude bastard. I like heat. Come out of my zoom,